Welcome to the All About You podcast. My name is Sheila and I am your host. In this podcast, I invite people to tell their stories of their travels, hobbies and passions. These podcasts are also now available on my All About You YouTube channel. So if you have a story to tell, please contact me on allaboutyoupodcast at yahoo.com and let's tell your story. Welcome to the All About You podcast and my guest today is Dwayne Cerny who is the co-owner of the Broadway Antique Market, Chicago's oldest and largest multi-dealer vintage destination. He has written a book called Selling Dead People's Things about his experiences and his journey of buying and selling dead people's things. Now this is not going to be a morbid conversation but it's going to be a glimpse into the world of other people's stuff. Dwayne, welcome to the All About You podcast. Hi, Sheila. Thank you for having me. I am very, very happy and so looking forward to this podcast because this is going to be fascinating. It's not going to be morbid at all. I think there's going to be a lot of laughs along the way. I, I trust you. Yes, I believe so. <laughs> okay, Dwayne. So let's start at the very beginning. Did you, as a child, want to be an antique dealer? You know, I I actually didn't know what an antique dealer was, but uh, I have a I have a chapter in my book which describes uh, that something. I was about eight or nine, and I opened up what I called the porch store which is I would go through the neighborhood with my little uh, Sears Roebuck wagon and ask kids if they wanted me to sell their toys for them, their unused toys. <laughs> and, um, and I would bring them all and put them on my, uh, on my mother's uh, concrete porch. I had a sign that said the porch store, which again, in retrospect, was very bad marketing. Adults would drive by and ask if I knew somebody who did aluminum siding, you know. <laughs> they, you know, they didn't get it. So basically, I consigned other kids' toys you know, for them, or they could swap them out. So I would make, you know, just a, li- a little bit of money. And until uh, my mother put a stop to that, there were just too many kids hanging around in front of the house. Well, I appreciate your entrepreneur spirit at such a young age. Yeah, that, I've always, I've always had something going, or or two or three things going, and that was that was that was the that was the first one. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times they were like broken toys or kind of crazy. But um, yeah, I don't know even know where I came up with that idea, but uh, it worked for a, a summer. <laughs> Better than the delivering newspapers. Well, they always say someone else's trash is someone else's treasure. And I totally believe that. Yes, and it's, it's, it's become almost a lifestyle for me now. Yeah. So let's talk about the progression then. So you had your little store when you were nine years old. What happened in between then for you getting involved with buying and selling dead people's things? Oh, gosh, that's that's going to be a, a kind of a big jump there. I went to uh, uh, college on a poetry scholarship, which is my dad once said to me, he says, what are you going to do, stand on a mountain? Because <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Uh, but then I, I got a degree in uh, English and theater, um, and I thought I was going to teach because my sister was a teacher. So I kind of followed her path. And uh, in um, college, I went to the same college she went to, which was uh, Northeastern Illinois University. And in college, um, I applied for all these scholarships 
basically I was trying to get out of my parents' house. And I figured if I could get a scholarship, then they wouldn't have to pay for it and I could move. Didn't exactly work. So there was a, a, a playwriting scholarship, a fiction scholarship, and a poetry scholarship. And I wrote a play, a novel, and then I just threw together like a dozen poems. And I really didn't even think twice about that. Well, darn it, if I didn't win the poetry scholarship, I won a four-year poetry scholarship. Um, and so I was awarded that from Gwendolyn Brooks, who was the poet laureate of Illinois. She had placed Carl Sandburg. I'm sure you've heard of Carl Sandburg. And so that kind of set me off on that, which again, like, you know, what are you going to do with that? So from that, I went into word processing, legal word processing to make some money. And on the side, on the weekends, I would hit flea markets and garage sales, estate sales and other stores. And I furnished my apartment just with the with the cast offs from my mother's you know 1950s uh, apartment, you know, just big sofas and brass lamps and uh, all the stuff that was down in the basement. And then I bought things to kind of fit in with that. I always liked older things. I didn't like new stuff. Uh, then I used to go to one particular store, the largest antique store in Chicago at the time, Chicago Antique Mall. And um, I that pretty much stalked the store, if you could stalk a store. I would go in there every weekend and wander around, and I was just dazzled. You know, I had these saucer eyes of all this stuff. And I didn't know anything. I mean, I just knew you know, zero. This is the, before the Internet, before you had a computer in your pocket. So all I could do is, like, read books, which I've always been reading books. So I just learned about a lot of things going in there. And I became friends with the owner's wife. And we started talking, and she said... Uh, we, she asked me what I did, and I said, well, I write business plans and resumes for people. And she said, would you be willing to do our marketing? And I thought, well, wow, that could really be fun. Of course, I don't, wouldn't really, I could do that, but I really didn't know about antiques. And so she said, I can't give you any money, but I can give you a booth in the basement. And as anybody who's into antiques knows, if you go to an antique store, you want to go in the basement, because that's where all the good stuff is. And certainly the reasonable price things. So they gave me a booth and I didn't know what I was doing and I would buy stuff and it would sell like the same day because I didn't know how to price. So the owner noticed that and she paired me up with a dealer from Madison, Wisconsin, who needed somebody to supervise his booth. And she was unwilling to give him a booth because he lived so far away. And his name is uh, Jeff Nelson. Uh, I went up to Madison. I met him and uh, he kind of became my mentor. I was just amazed at how smart this guy was. And he had managed a mid-century modern store in Madison, and they would sell to dealers in New York and L.A. So right there, that's a big jump from going from, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> to at least being friends with someone who does know what they're doing. So he took half the booth with me, and then we would buy things together, and we would then we started renting booths and paying for them. And like within a year, we had most of the basement of the store. That store would close maybe about a year later. And oh my gosh, we were making money. It was great. Um, <laughs> hand over fist. That store closed. And we were like, we're out of business. We have this new business. We're doing really well. So we opened up a, a single 1,500 square foot store across the street from the mall. So we opened the day the old mall closed. And then every, I would say, year, we would open up another store and another store. We took the basement. So we were like 10,000 square feet in like four or five years. And then another three years later, which would have been eight years, we moved to Edgewater. We found an old uh, vintage um, furniture store from the 1930s. 
and uh, moved the whole thing over there and then again doubled our size to like 20,000 square feet. So that was 1998 we did that. So officially then, and the, ending the story with now, we're now the, the oldest and largest antique store in Chicago. There's the story. It's absolutely fascinating. And I love the fact that your career path was something completely different. Yep. You had no sort of formal training in antiques or buying and selling, yet you went on to be incredibly successful. So can I ask you then, Dwayne, where were you actually sourcing all the stuff that you had in these basements and then in these stores? Sure, good, good question. Well, we're right in the Midwest. We're in Chicago. So Jeff was from Wisconsin, and he knew every little nook and cranny, every resale store, every antique mall up in Wisconsin. So we, boy, we went through that state. We had a, he had a pickup truck, and we would be on the road like twice, twice a week and made hundreds of trips bringing things first to Madison to process them there. But we'd also go to Indiana, uh, Iowa, Kentucky, as far as Kentucky, all the surrounding states. Not And at that time, not a lot from Chicago, which has, I think that's one reason that we did well, because we, we were bringing things from outside that people hadn't seen before. I really learned a lot about, which is something I want to talk to, uh, and why I wanted to talk to you today, is because you know people are really good and I'm sure you'd agree, are really good at buying things. A smart shopper and right, and getting a value and a deal and nobody's selling you anything really, right? But we're not good sellers. Part of this is what it's gonna be about today because in processing things, you need to sell these things. We'll talk about donations later, but you need to be a good seller. And um, in between, I had gone to, uh, of all things, uh, Second City, which is a comedy school here in, in Chicago, if you've ever heard of that. And uh, I learned a lot about actually about selling. That was a great class to take for just anybody in business because you, you basically, you, again, you don't talk anybody into, into anything. There's an art and a science to it. And I think that was one reason why I was, I was good at it. And uh, here Jeff had already managed a really good store in Madison, so he was good at it. And so together we were really good at it. You were doing really, really well with these stores. Your partnership was working. You're going out there and you're finding all this stuff. Where are you finding this? Are you literally going to house sales and estate sales? You know, we went to a lot of stores and, and I mean, antique stores and we'd look at things and said, mm, you know, this would sell for more in Chicago. We could get more for that. A lot of the original merchandise, that's where it came from, other retail stores. If you're a dealer, you know, they'll give you maybe 10% off. And if you have a tax number, you don't have to pay sales tax. So you know, there's some, there's margins there. And we were always like, well, gee, if, you know, if we double our money or triple our money, that's great. I've since learned that dealers can come in from New York or L.A. And even now, if they can't make five or six times their money, they're not going to buy it. So you needed a... You need to buy it sharp and and sell it sharp, and it's the same thing. We'll you know we'll talk we'll talk about that when other people have to you know deal with such things. But initially, we were really buying from other stores. Um, we did some auctions. Really didn't have a whole lot of luck at auctions. It was just too it was just too competitive. You know, uh, you only need two people to run up a price, and then you're overpaying for something, and you can't you can't really overpay for something. You just you know, that's that's bad. <laughs> One of the biggest growing businesses we have now is sort of the, the storage lockups. 
And my understanding is we've basically filled our houses, we've filled our cupboards, our garages, our sheds and everything else, and we've run out of space. And we're like, rather than sort through it, just transport it somewhere. And then when I get time, I'll go down there and I'll sort through it. But that's where it all goes horribly wrong, because we don't do that. And we've even got TV programmes now where people are buying a lockup and really you get, you know, the shutter goes up, people bid on it. So that that's, you know, spurned a whole whole nother business. But, yeah, we just seem to buy be buying more and more stuff. Yeah, you can see the cycle there. It's like the circle of resale life, right? Because those storage locker sales are people who have fallen behind on paying their monthly fee. And then the, that's that's why there's a sale. I, I'm totally against storage lockers. They're extremely expensive. It's if you're having to do a storage locker, that's a sign from God <laughs> that you're not taking care of things. Um, and I'm not telling people that, oh, you need to live with all this stuff. You need to you need to start addressing it before you get to that point. I mean, I know people who will have half a dozen storage lockers. Oh, my gosh, it's so expensive. You know, that's actually in Wall Street. That's one of the best investments you can make are the companies that build those storage locker places. So think about that because <laughs> they know, you know, it's going to be it's going to be human nature. So, yeah, huge growing thing here as well. But I'm always actually I've helped a lot of people just to get out of their storage locker so they can get away from that month, those monthly fees. It's a, rather an addiction. It's it's not good. Let's get on to some stories now, then. So. Buying and selling dead people's things. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I do want to say that, you know, because I, I, I certainly don't want to mis, mislead people. What we're going to talk about today is is just really kind of helping people. How do you address when you, you either, well, inherit these things or it's your own, your, your own personal things. And I have some solutions for that, right? But I do want to say... That's not what this book is about. Just I don't want to mislead anybody. These are my experiences in buying and selling. Um, and they're, some of them are very strange because I've gone on just like thousands of sales. So I always say, you know, there's 30 stories in the book, but it's not like every time I turn around, something insane happens. You know, it's, it would seem like fiction, but it's also based on, you know, some 20 years of, of this. Uh, one of my favorite ones was a friend of mine told me that there was a, a old gentleman who had a um, hardware store and he was like in the middle of rural Indiana and he was retiring and he said in the basement it was it was a huge place it was like a, it was a kind of a town where there was a stoplight and that was it right that was there was that was the town was pretty much his hardware store um, and he'd been there for years and so in the basement because they had sold all this wood and stuff over the years he built a wild west town. So if you can imagine like kind of Disneyland where you'd go to or any kind of a theme park, right? And I mean, it was a real wild west town. So there's wooden floorboards and there were intersections of streets and there were facades of buildings and some were, most were fake. You know, there, there, there's like a funeral home was fake and there's the, the curtains are closed. It wasn't a real funeral home, but there was a candy store and that was a real candy store, right? Um, and there was a barber shop, which was a real barber shop. And uh, there was a general store, which was kind of not really real. That was more like kind of propped out. It was crazy. I'd never seen such a thing in the middle of rural Indiana. And, and it was huge. It had to be, I, 
I don't know, 5,000 square feet. Why did he do this? Because he wanted to make his hardware store different than everybody else's. And when, you know, a family would go on Saturday and dad needs to buy farm equipment or whatever for the house or whatever you needed, he'd say to the kids, go downstairs. So it became a family destination. And of course, then he had a lady there selling, it was like penny candy and, you know. So anyway, he's retiring. So this is just empty. I mean, there are no people there, basically, because he's retiring. So so anyway, I'm buying, like in the barbershop, I'm buying the signs off the wall because he had all this shaving stuff and people buy shaving things and razors. There were some razors there. and The candy stuff, I think I bought some of the empty jars. But the reason I went there is because my friend had said in the back, which was not open to the public, this guy has historical expression really as a dime museum, but we would call it a sideshow. So a dime museum would be, and, and these animals were from um, Arizona, which would be like a roadside attraction, and you pay a dime and you get to see the freak animals. They were all taxidermy, right? Well, this is an incredible opportunity. When do you see things like this? And so it had a two-headed cow and a double-bodied lamb and a two-headed turtle and things in a jar. So freak, freak animals. But again, all taxidermied, so nobody, no, they didn't kill them. As I have to point out to people, sideshow animals were taken, really taken care of because people would pay more money to see a live animal than a dead animal. Animal oddities got the best of care because they were just worth more alive than dead. You know, but anyway, just as an aside, I negotiated with the guy and and he was a real character. Well, he wanted it all gone. So, and we, I think we agreed at 1500 bucks. Um, and he goes, well, you go upstairs and see our lien at the cash register. It's a giant brass cash register. And, uh, you know, pay for it. And, but you got to get it out of here today. Got to get it out of here today. So I go up there. I mean, we negotiated, of course. I think he started at 2500 bucks, And I wasn't moved off, off of 15 That was pretty much all the money I had on me. So I pay our lien, right? And Arlene says, and gives me the receipt, and Arlene says to me, true story, I'm so glad you museum people are getting this. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> so I thought, well, I already bought them. She thinks I'm somebody else. And we loaded all up into the van. And this was my friend, High Roth, which is a couple chapters in, in the uh, book about High Roth. High Roth was a, an illustrator at Playboy magazine. He was a cartoonist. Fascinating character and a friend of old, old old friend of mine. And this is the kind of adventures High Roth would drag me into. Just a, just a lovely man. So we get in the van and I'm going, what is this? What is this? Arlene says we're the museum people. And he goes, he says, I got tipped off. The Field Museum has an appointment here in an hour. Field Museum, yeah, Field Museum of Chicago. They were coming to buy this. He says, so I thought, let's get here early and maybe we can just buy it in front of them and ahead of them. And of course, that's what we did. <laughs> now, subsequent to that, and we won't get into the whole thing, but that cow got me into propping movies because that next Halloween, I had it in the window of my store and uh, I, I got a phone, all kinds of people called it and wanted to rent the cow and I wasn't renting it. It wasn't for sale. It was just to get people to come in the store. And uh, a guy called and he said, hey, I'm in town making a movie and I, I was having dinner at a restaurant across the street near Francesca. And uh, I'd like to rent the cow. And I said, the cow's not for sale. And the guy says, no, no, you don't understand. This is Oliver Stone. Right? And I said, sure you are, buddy. And I hung up on him. The next day, a young lady calls me and she said, um, 
Oliver Stone, who was in town, he's making a film called Natural Born Killers. Um, and we, he called and someone there hung up on him. Was it you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, that would be me. And she goes, well, he was really upset that you hung up on him, but he still wants the cows. So I, I rented the cows for a week for $1,000. And after that, to this point, that's many years ago, uh, it's actually in the boxed edition. You can see a part. What they did is they put the cameras behind the cows so you see the cows' perspective in the woods. Hollywood. This is why movies cost $100 million, right? So that's got us cropping films to this day. To this day, we're doing that. We're doing the, the TV shows this week. Uh, we've done hundreds of TV shows and films and uh, uh, plays at the Goodman and uh, commercials and just goes on and on. But that opened the door for it also because it was something that unusual. And once you kind of get in that community of propping, people who prop things, then they know about you. They only have to find you once. And they'll say, yeah, this guy gets good stuff. And he's easy to deal with. I, I think that is absolutely brilliant. You've gone <laughs> from buying and selling things to loaning out various things for film and TV. I, I think that is brilliant. You know, 80% of life is just being there. Just show up, <laughs> right? To these opportunities. There's opportunities there, but you have to be there and you have to act on them. You can't go. I mean, probably hanging up on him was the best thing that I could could have done. He just wanted it more. So that's just kind of dumb luck on, on my part. I've since learned, you know, not to do that. But we just had so many goofy phone calls that I was just exhausted that day. And, you know, ooh, Oliver Stone's calling me. I don't think so. But that's one of that's one of my favorite favorite stories is because it's just kind of covers the waterfront of buying, selling, and then leading you into, you know, a whole other business. I mean, I think that's a brilliant story, Dwayne. One of the things I wanted to go over with you is I have lots of conversations with people. Often they will have collections of crockery that were handed down. They've got glasses, art, jewellery, all sorts of different things. And I think one of the things is... A lot of people now have got the collection, for example, of their mother's china, their grandmother's china. They live a different life now and they really don't know what to do with all this stuff. I mean, it's all beautiful stuff, you know, Waterford crystal and beautiful china. Not the sort of thing they want to use on a daily basis. They're frightened to use it anyway in case it gets broken. But they think, well, I don't know what to do with it. My children don't want it. When I go, what am I going to do? And I always say to people, try and use it. I mean, I remember when my dad died, I kept one of his crystal, cut crystal tumblers. And I use it every single day, even just to drink water from. Because for me, it's beautiful. I love it. Yes, it could get broken, but I would rather have the pleasure of using that every day than have it stuck in a box, not seeing the light of day. Can you just give us your thoughts on this sort of problem? Well, I first off, I think that's a, 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 a lovely tribute and more people need to listen to you. And that's as a, as a suggestion. So, OK, it's this is like the number one question, especially when it comes to dinnerware. Because as we know, people just don't entertain as they used to. So, you know, I have the service for 12. It's like, stop, just stop. <laughs> Dinnerware is one of the toughest things. 
but and we could talk about things and just uh, everything is different as far as what you should do with it. First off, we're all so blessed in that we have uh, we have the internet, and you should first if if you're saying you if one really doesn't want it, you know, and if you can if you if no one in your if your kids don't want it. Though some, they won't want dishes, but kids now are actually kind of looking at this because it's green. And they don't want to buy something new. They'd rather have something old. Where you're 10, 20 years ago, kids wouldn't want their parents' stuff. It's a misnomer. They won't want dishes. <laughs> That's not a misnomer. Um, but other things they might go, sure, I'll take that. Yeah. So, you know, always ask them first. Right. And if there's any other relative who you think might really appreciate it for whatever reason, you know, I mean, my gosh, there's people who actually like broken dishes because they make shard art out of them. That's a thing. So first, look it up online. Um, I'm going to suggest uh, two things. One is very obvious, which is just looking at eBay. But don't look at what people are asking for on eBay. Go on the, on the left-hand side, about the middle of the page, and it says sold, what things actually sold for. That's the only time you should look at eBay for anything valid, because that's reality of what something actually sold for, not what some goofballs thinks they can get for it because we don't want to be goofballs. The other site is called Worth Point. Worth Point. I think you can uh, take uh, you have to it's a, there's a fee, but I think you could just do it for a month. It's it's rather inexpensive. And that canvases all the sales, all the sales, many of the sales, even globally from auction houses and eBay results that go back further than 30 days. It's a, it's fantastic. That being said, you know, let's just say this dinnerware and you find it and you say, wow, OK, I see this sold for like eight hundred dollars, but it sold back in 2011 because it'll go back. Well, you know, there's the good and the bad of that. It's just at that point, it's just kind of a number. You know, it has value because somebody paid for it. But that was 11 years ago. So whatever you're looking up, keep that in mind something a more current value is closer to what it's really going to be worth what someone sold it for but the older it is it's debatable there are things that increase in value uh, native american jewelry i was thinking last night for you since we're talking to like an international audience uh people really like um things marked uh, west germany because there is no longer a west germany so the, and west germany tended to make a lot of pottery and very mid-century pottery, given, you know, given the time, 50s, 60s, things like that. So that's something that's increased in value, where before it was like, yeah, who cares? All these things are very niche. You know, it's kind of divided up into, it depends what it is. So first, look it up. At that, if you can't find anyone, I do suggest, like, if you have a favorite charity or thrift and you donate it, I don't know how it works there in Spain, but here in the States, you can, for... You make a donation, you can get up to $500. They'll give you a little receipt that you donated it. You can take it off of your taxes. Well, that's $500 right there, right? I'm sure from country to country, it's different. Might be less, might be more, might not be effective at all. I don't know. That Let's just say you inherited these this set of dishes. Think about the person you inherited it from and where they would want it to go. Think about where, where, where the item actually originated and as far as like where it should go. Thirdly, and you can't do this just because you had a set of dishes, but I would say if one has enough for an actual tag sale, you can either bring in someone to have a sale. You can have an estate sale of things that from someone who hasn't passed. It's just an estate. It's a state that someone's still alive. If you have enough things, 
And people love to buy small things at estate sales. And even a set of dishes, that's considered smalls. It's not a, a china break front or a dining room set or whatever. You know, you can sell those there, but it's just, it's harder. People showing up aren't prepared to go and buy a bedroom set. You know, dealers are, but but for the most part, the public's not. So recapping, do your research online to see what you actually have. Is there any value to it? And particularly, like, if there isn't value to it, that's all the more reason you should, like, donate it. Don't be like, well, if there was no value online for it, don't try selling it at a tax sale because you're going to it's just going to sit there. I think one of the problems is, I mean, if we sort of refer back to, you know, on Alice's set of China, we've often inherited this through maybe from our parents generation. And it's it's the the thought that it if we get rid of it, it's it's a disservice to that person. It's a disservice to their memory. And whenever you look at these programs about decluttering and organising, people are pretty good until it comes to the sentimental stuff. Everybody seems to grind to a halt. It's like, I really will never use this. I don't even like it, but it belonged to great Aunt Mabel. And that's where people get stuck. As you say, that person's china is not that person you're still going to have the memories of that person even if you don't have that china you might decide to keep one very small vase or an egg cup or something if you want to do that it, it's that sentimental connection that catches everyone out it's it's it slows it all down yes absolutely and and with what you just said there i always say that that's my social worker hat that I put on. And I actually have a friend who is a social worker who occasionally I bring into things going, help me with this, because this person is so stuck. Um, and we need to break through that. And it's, and it can be done. And you know what, so often, they're so relieved that there was a solution found, especially when you can say, look at the joy that the item is going to bring the next person. Is that, as I always saying, we're the temporary. Humans are the temporary. The objects, for the most part, they go they go on and on and on. Yeah, they might get chipped or cracked a little there and there, but you know some of them destroyed. But for the most part, they go they go on and on. And you you'd want that. And so that's no disservice to the to the person's memory. I love the idea of just keeping one thing. I know we we talked previously, and maybe you want to relate that story about jewelry. I, I thought that was very touching. About that's a way to handle something. Yeah, I mean, because basically what I had is I had jewellery pieces from my mum and my mum's mum. And I sort of went through it, picked out a few pieces I would wear. The rest I thought, OK, I'm never going to wear this. I went to speak to a jeweller I knew and I said, OK, this is the problem. I'm never going to wear this. What I would like to do is sort of trade it in for something I do want. And that's what I did. I ended up getting a beautiful ring. And although it's not directly a piece from my mum or my nan, it's basically a piece that I love and I consider to be from my family. And, and it really did solve the problem. I treasure it as if it was a family heirloom. And I would certainly recommend and I think particularly for women, you know, we've all got little jewellery boxes or a little envelope or a box. 
if you're not going to wear it, talk to a jeweller, see what they can do and see, even if it's a little pair of earrings, yeah. fine. You've still got the memory, you've still got the sentiment, but you've actually got something that you love and will wear. And every time you look at it, you'll think of a whole collection of jewelry that brought you to that point in time. And I just think that's lovely. I mean, just that's a very thoughtful thing. And I think that's often what people are afraid of is that, oh, I'm I'm being dismissive. I'm not I'm not giving honor to these things. You know, I would just add to that for anyone who's hesitant is, you know, go to three different jewelers <laughs> just to make sure you're getting, you know, don't, don't take the first offer that comes along unless it's a good one and then go back and take that one. So just like anything else, you know, you're being, that would be, that would be a smart shopper because you're, you're selling something. Right. So that's my, that's my two cents on that one. But I think that that's a, a lovely idea. The other thing I like to throw out, and I, I've been in this situation a, a couple times, uh, I would say, unfortunately, but it, it happens is that, uh, so I had um, my, um, my sister had passed back in 2000 at uh, 50. She was very young. I had all this clothing, her clothing, she was a school teacher, but all this lovely clothes that she's care of her clothes. And that's some fancy. This is just practical women's clothing. And there's a lot of it. And um, I was here. I'm in the business. And I was just lost because it's, it's, it wasn't I wouldn't be selling it anyway. It wasn't vintage, you know. But but that's not the point. I just I still wouldn't have sold it. Uh, I was like, what, what what's the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do? And if people, oh, donate it, donate it. I go, well, yeah, you donate it. But I felt funny donating it to a thrift store that's then going to resell it, right? And I I want to find the one that'd be the right cause. And then someone had mentioned there's a, a place here in town, and it's called. And I'm, I'm sure there are many of these, but not by the same name. But so this here in, in Chicago, it's called Sarah's Circle. And what it is, it's a, a homeless shelter for women to relaunch them. And the, the deal is they actually have a, I'm just going to say like a, you know, a dress shop for last, lack of a better expression, a clothing store within their facility. And each woman is allowed to go and uh, pick up a dress or a pair of slacks and a blouse and a pair of shoes and a handbag if they want it. Da, 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 da. It's all very organized. very or And there's like always a line <laughs> of these things. And it was great. It was a it was it was a wonderful experience for me. I just felt right about it. And so these things weren't going. I know it's what my sister would have wanted was these things to just help with other you know women who were, you know, uh, abusive relationship. Uh, but I'd also say now, particularly with everything that's going on in the Ukraine, I'm certain there's a huge demand for donated clothing. And so people should do. I'm sure you can look online and set, find out where where are they collecting these things, right? It's a time to do some good. This is a bigger issue. It's something. It's something you can do. It solves a problem for you. You'll feel good about doing it. It's the right thing to do, and it's something that you know offhand you don't really you know think about. And like I said, I'm in the business, and I I, I didn't know. And I've since uh, my aunt passed away in 2003, and then I did the same thing. And I, what I thought was funny about it was my aunt was very much the fashion plate. She had beautiful clothing. I I've kind of laughed because I thought, wow, there's going to be some ladies walking around that they're looking fine <laughs> from, from, from some of my Aunt Bernice's clothing. And I felt I mean, it was a little more difficult just because times had changed, but I was still able to connect with them. And uh, clothing is just one of those things, again, you kind of stumble on going, you know, stumble over rather, you know, how, what, how to. How do I handle this? Um, especially as a guy, women's clothing, I don't know, you know. 
a lady had her husband's clothing that obviously he had passed away and she decided to get his ties she cut the ties and she made a patchwork cushion of his ties I mean she was very very crafty with the sewing machine it looked absolutely stunning and she said I was happy to get rid of everything else and send them out there for their next chapter in someone's life and she had this beautiful cushion made from all his ties and I thought that was just phenomenal so there are things we can do that can solve the problem plus we've still got the sentiment there so we, we don't feel we're doing a disservice to that person and we've still left with something very very personal that we can enjoy in, in our everyday life exactly it's kind of thinking outside the box too on, on some of these things getting cre getting creative with it you know and there's there's a much greater personal satisfaction in in that i mean you'll be happy with yourself that you kind of figured out a, a good solution to a problem. And that's lovely because again, it's taking a collection of things and making one thing and then you, and she has that and then it means so much to her. I'm sure it even has the scent of him on there with all those ties, right? So that's that's lovely. Well, I have to say, we did say at the beginning of this conversation, Dwayne, that it was not gonna be a morbid conversation. I think we've had some brilliant stories. We've found some really out of the box ideas for dealing with the problems we're all going to come across at some point in our lives with getting rid of our things getting rid of family relative things i think it's been a brilliant conversation it absolutely has you've, you've, you've given me inspiration oh well that's good so we'll obviously put links to the book and we'll put all the links with social media so if anybody wants to get in touch with you wants to um buy a copy of your book Dwayne, thank you, thank you for a really brilliant conversation. Thank you. Yes, anybody wants to contact me, you can just you can just email me. That I'm all over social media. I'd, I'd be happy to answer your questions. It's it's pretty much what I do. <laughs> oh, Wayne, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please subscribe on whatever platform you are using. It is free. And if you would like to tell your story, please contact me on allaboutyoupodcast at yahoo.com and let's tell your story.